0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. On the show today is James Nestor. James Nestor is the author of Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art and Deep Free Diving, Renegade Science and what ocean what the ocean tells us about ourselves. He also works with what well, it says here, it's meant to be say. It's meant to be say. He works <laughs> I with
1: see. now we've both done it. <laughs> it's So it's <laughs> <ridiculous. laughs> <laughs> well,
0: Yeah, but I've done it live, talking. Yeah. Look at you, what you've written. It's
1: weird, because I did actually... He also worked
0: with National Geographic Explorer. That's what you've put.
1: He also...
0: He also worked with... Oh,
1: I left out ED.
0: Or or S. You know, it's got to be either... He also worked with the National Geographic Explorer and marine scientist David Groover.
1: It's supposed to be past tense.
0: He did that happen in the past, no more. That's not happening ever again. Worked. So what happens to you? And you're just typing away, are you, with your little narrow elbows. Have you had much interest on your emails since re- Since we've been brought? it? It hasn't been it? released it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see.
1: <laughs> we've gone into that weird world. of. Have you got yourself a boyfriend or a girlfriend or anyone? I went to... on a date.
0: Who did you go on a date with? I
1: don't want to talk necessarily talk about it because she knows that I do the podcast and she might listen. But no, is it not? So why can't
0: <laughs> we just talk about it?
1: What if... Um, because
0: it's of your private life? What
1: if it's not... Uh,
0: sure, sure. Was it a date or are you lying?
1: Oh, well, I assume it was a date.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. How do you know if... It's, why wouldn't it have been a date? This is a date. I didn't know her prior.
0: Did she contact you online? Yeah. And she goes, do you want to go meet up for a socially distanced walk sometime? Yeah. yeah. Did you respect social distancing throughout?
1: You yeah, we were outside the whole time.
0: Where'd you go? What'd you do?
1: Got, coffee got a coffee in Norwich. <laughs> got a coffee in Norwich.
0: Yeah. Did you enjoy the vibe?
1: Yeah, I think I'm emotionally unavailable.
0: <laughs> Jen, I pray you're emotionally unavailable. I pray you are.
1: Oh, see, I shouldn't say that because what if she listens? I haven't told her.
0: <laughs> Whoever you are, mystery, coffee, and Norwich woman, Jen oh, no. is not emotionally <laughs> unavailable. Oh. She's a good woman. Oh. She's a kind person. Just don't study her too deeply, <laughs> is what I'd invite. Now, you, I think the more you know Jenny, the more you like her. Really? So I would suggest another <laughs> socially distanced, responsible date. In and around East Anglia. <laughs> Maybe it go was nice Kingdom going in. into a
1: city.
0: What was it like?
1: I just liked being in a city again. Have
0: you not been to a city for a while?
1: Yeah.
0: What are you, a bumpkin? No. What are you, a yokel? Well, it's cause a you're from sailor? That, <laughs> you're from that little village in Ireland, aren't you, where everyone came out to yeah. wave you off. Dublin. You, yes, that little village. Yeah. And they all waved you off when you came over to the big yeah. smoke to a... I don't know why us. you like this
1: story
0: There's so much. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I do like it though, Jen. Now, that, if you are listening to this, James, I'm sorry that we're doing this, but some people like what we call the banter decanter, live with Jenny May Finn, and I'd like a sting. What okay, not you make I'll a sting? Put a sting in. All right, I'm going to listen to this.
1: Are you? Yeah. Really? No.
0: But well, I'd like you to <laughs> so play it me. I put it, it in. on the sting. Yeah. Banter decanter. I'd like it to be like okay, capital Gold. Say something. Gold. Banter, decanter, decanter, decanter. Like that, (laughs) one of those ones. (laughs) Like I want it to sound like it's from space.
1: Okay. Thanks.
0: Banter, decanter, decanter, decanter. decanter, 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 decanter. Now time for comments. Comments, comments. I'd like a sting there. Why don't you do some production? You've got nothing else to do except Uh, wander around Norwich sipping coffees.
1: It's the only thing I've done in a while.
0: Well, it's affecting your work, Jen. (laughs) It's affecting the quality of your work. I think it's best you- But you you...
1: told me I have to meet people.
0: I've changed my mind. Don't meet people. I have a question. Go on.
1: (laughs) Which is more important, being happy alone or finding someone?
0: God, that is a good question, isn't it? (laughs) I think if you're happy alone.
1: But what if you're just generally unhappy? Should you be happy alone or find someone?
0: All right, hold on, let me break this down. (laughs) There should be no obligation to live in accordance with what could potentially be socially designed forms of living, like cohabitation or partnerships, particularly the heterodoxy that has dominated culture in you know, countries such as ours, European, post-colonial nations. But there is some evidence to suggest that people are comfortable cohabiting. But there's a lot of right in there. There's shamanic wizard people like that like I could be if I could stand to be alone for more than <laughs> a few seconds. Like, and there's people like that are content to be alone in reflection and devotion and dedication. But there are other people who are spending time on their own because they're essentially afraid of opening up their heart <laughs> and getting hurt. I don't now, know which me. one are you?
1: I'm not that. I like being alone.
0: You like it? Down by the sea?
1: Yeah, but then if I'm sad, people are like, well, maybe you're lonely. But then I shouldn't be looking for someone to make me happy, right? That's true. You know, So then you shouldn't look for someone.
0: Look, my personal if belief... If you're not happy. My personal belief, Jen, <laughs> if you wouldn't mind... I think it's best you stay alone, mostly because you're a pain in the arse. Why should anyone else suffer? <laughs> but my feeling is, is that we have to find within ourselves, as the Buddha says, a home in our hearts, a place within ourselves where we can be at ease. Or as Christ says, the kingdom of heaven is is within. I wish I could think of something for the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, <laughs> but I don't know enough about the Quran just yet. But I bet he says something like that, you've got to find everything within you, of course he will. So I reckon you have to start from that point and then you don't need to make a decision, you don't need a policy. If you're finding your contentment through personal practices and connection with your inner nature, outer nature, relationships with others through service then whether or not you have a romantic relationship or partnership is secondary incidental a personal choice and across one lifetime you could be a person that wants to be alone or a person that wants to cohabit i have times where i think that if my family life didn't work out i don't think i could go back to promiscuity or i can't envisage being in a different kind of relationship i think i'd have to go full druid full druid you know robes (laughs) Moss. But then what if
1: you bump into someone and you're like?
0: Who are they? What are they like?
1: <laughs> They're really nice.
0: Are they up for it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the review again. They're nice.
0: They're nice. <laughs> mm, that yeah. is tempting. A and, nice um, person. And not... Uh, also, but what's happened to my family? Where have they gone? They've been driven away it's by you. It's a different you. life. It's a different life. i am still. driven away. You <laughs> drive people away, Jen. Um, I think, look, I'm going full Druid if I'm not gonna be a householder dedicated to the service of my family. But you, I reckon (laughs) you should focus on your personal contentment, evolving and developing yourself, and taking these opportunities as they come without imposing anything on them. None of us escape from our childhood conditioning without trauma and damage, and none of us escape from the social conditioning and the strong obligations placed upon us to live and conform to particular patterns of heterogeneous (laughs) lifestyle. But I reckon, for everyone concerned, Jen, find a cave (laughs) and get some cement. (laughs) I'm joking. I reckon that you should, as long as you are feeling fulfilled and content in yourself, I I would investigate You're a very young person. And I think that who knows what catalytic effects will be felt by the introduction of another person. My mates in Sancti interesting the other day. Egos, everything you think you know is from your perspective. The perspective of God is beyond subjectivity. That's what we're assuming, that there is an objective truth beyond subjectivity. Like think of your most strongly held beliefs. It's all just come from via your head and via your experiences. Even if it's something you've been told by someone else, the fact that that belief or philosophy is attractive to you is because of your individual biases. So I reckon... Like the reason I'm bringing that up, I suppose, is because I think allow yourself to change because I don't think there's such a thing as a solid self that's immovable. I believe we have an essence, but I think there's so much mutability in the type of lives we could live.
1: Sounds like a hermit crab.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a hermit. Did you just have this whole conversation with me so that you How could say that? I didn't
1: know something- that you were going to say that. <laughs>
0: You know the sort of things <laughs> I say. I'm always going to say something about the essence and mutability. I'm always going to say something like it, Jen, at the end. I'll always yeah. get to that point. That was a genuine question. I say go on a few dates, see how it goes.
1: All
0: right. See how it goes. Okay. Try being yourself. Don't conceal it.
1: I have to a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Conceal it a little bit. Don't
0: let out the full self. No one needs that. Take that to your grave with you. That's my advice. <laughs> All right, so here's some comments, comments, comments. <laughs> Play Sting, Jen. Now time comments. for <laughs> comments, comments, comments. Steph Hoy again. I've, how many times are you going to do comments from Steph Hoy? <laughs> I'm sure I've read that name.
1: No. name? he was nice? a good oh, comment. Yeah. No, he hasn't. He doesn't listen to Under the Skin. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, pretends like he, he cares. Of course he does. He's loyal. Uh, no. I never stop. He's never me listen in to me now. <laughs>
0: I've heard Steph underscore Hoyt. I've Maybe seen it. Maybe she's a big fan. Look, looks like we've got one listener. Might as well be from Barbara Brand. <laughs> yeah, Steph Hoyt. All right, Steph. <laughs> if any subjects you want me to cover in particular, might as well. Seems well, people how su-
1: seem to like her, her comments. Huh? People seem to like what she says.
0: Who's people?
1: Because I have a look and I see then they, some people like people's comments. So then I and
0: Have it. a look and don't pretend there's a research <laughs> process. You're picking stuff out of the Are air you, at random because you're so busy trotting <laughs> around Norwich with your fancy woman that you can't be asked to do your job properly. <laughs> <laughs> like trotting around Norwich, like I show pony. trotting around. You were trotting around. What boots were you wearing? Those expensive ones off the No, internet. I wouldn't. That's what too, too much. You wear?
1: That was too much for... I wore my black primary converse-looking yeah they're quite nice that was probably a good choice choice. but you can trot in
0: those Jen I've seen you where was the emphasis of your weight through the ball of the foot or the heel (laughs) through the ball wasn't it it was the heel clip clopping (laughs) Steph Hoy (laughs) as usual (laughs) (laughs) Steph Hoy would you uh, I mean I might as well do a podcast called Steph Hoy (laughs) what's it it like being you
1: to have a regular he used to have regulars on the radio show yeah, well, uh, one
0: regular.
1: Who? It wasn't a regular.
0: <laughs> like there was Mr. Nibs or whatever yeah. he was called. <laughs> we all go. enjoyed him. That's the new Mr. Nib.
1: That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> the new Mr. Nibs. You were Mr. Nibs once. Now look at you. You've risen through the ranks. <laughs> <sighs> Stefan Hoy. Yes, I've been through this with my ex-partner, the father of my little boy. What is she talking about? Oh, dr- oh right, sorry. Comments. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Steph. If if she's our our only listener, we're going to have to learn the nuances (laughs) of her life. She's talking about the Elizabeth Burton Phillips episode that we did where we talked about drugs, addiction, and what it's like to love someone who's an addict. Yeah. Eh. (laughs) She says, I've been through this with my ex-partner, the father of my little boy. It wasn't until I stopped trying to help him that he got better by himself. Sometimes helping him enables him to continue... Good point, Steph. Hoy. I mean, I can't argue with you because if I fall out of your favour, I <laughs> won't have any comments to read out. If she ghosts us, we're done. We're out of content. If she catches a subscription, <laughs> we're all ruined. <laughs> uh, ah, here's someone I've not read before Lady Loretta Sklowaski. It's Steph. <laughs> <laughs> but this is also Steph I've been informed. for. I think an addict becomes an addict you've written the word important in a pen at the end of this comment. Because I
1: think there was a word left out because I found that it was not flowing. You're censoring these comments? Well, it's not censoring, it's the opposite.
0: You're embellishing them? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Maybe you can figure it out. Okay, let's read it and see if it
0: makes any sense. I think an addict becomes an addict because they're looking for a way out of having to face up to a life they don't feel comfortable in. It's a shame that the stigma still exists, but the understanding why people feel they cannot cope is because society isn't conducive for a sensitive soul.
1: Did I just add a word that doesn't make sense? Well,
0: no, it just says the word important, <laughs> oh, Jen. It's an important so comment. So that would read isn't conducive for a sensitive soul important. No, it look, can't
1: look. be that. No, you see the little arrow.
0: I do see a little <laughs> arrow, It's to go in
1: between those two words.
0: All right, all right. <laughs> It's a shame that stigma still exists, but the understanding why people feel they cannot cope is, is important, important, because society today See? isn't conducive for a sensitive soul. See? You've just, I don't think you were right to do this, okay. to Lady Loretta Sklowasky, aka Steph Hoy's <laughs> But if, if, the, if it was
1: missing, you'd say, why didn't you produce this no, it's properly? it's the same as
0: like in the intro, where it goes, yeah, no. welcome to the... Sh- podcast James Nestor. he also worked with National Geographic Explorer sounds like, sounds like it's supposed to be written by a farmhand in 19th century Suffolk he also worked with he worked a lot with a, <laughs> yes, a new, really. he got a new seed drill this fella you can trust them I
1: was worried though that it was not correct and cool. then, then he'd pick on me for that too
0: your concern that you're not correct uh, is a justifiable okay. one. <laughs> because you are not correct, Jen. And as soon as you start focusing on remedying that, instead of trotting around Norwich in your little bejeweled plimp cells. Uh, what? <laughs> All right. Here's some okay. listener shout out. shout out. Let's do a jingle for that. Listener shout out. Do you don't like making jingles? And make sure there's a variety of sounds. Well, so this one should be more change hip-hop. Change your pitch. Listener <laughs> shout-outs. That's how I want it to sound. Okay. Listen to shout outs <laughs> Shine Who went to SOAS And didn't understand The Adam Curtis episode That's the shout out
1: I'm not over Who's
0: Who Are you just so, blaming Charlie No I'm not
1: blaming anyone I'm going to see If you're going to blame me
0: I am blaming then, you right Now who are you blaming by,
1: So you're blaming Someone else then Kim Noble
0: <laughs> Kim Noble Out of Noble and Silver Kim Noble, a hospice nurse. Oh, no, it's just the same name. Kim Noble, a hospice, although that wouldn't surprise me if Kim Noble had become a hospice nurse as a sort of a immersive art piece. Kim Noble, a hospice nurse, wrote, Be still my heart. Oh, God, it's a sincere thing. I'm sorry, Kim. The, we're going to be sincere in it from a hospice nurse. Hospice nurse is not going to go, hey, man, what's up? And then, like, do, like, a sort of a picture of some rad hands. All right, let's concentrate. Be still my heart. Your most recent interview with David Kessler is phenomenal. I'm a hospice nurse and can't thank you enough for bringing attention to the Western culture of denying death. It's so vitally important to discuss our deaths and to address inevitable. Keep up the fine work. Thank you for expanding my paradigm to the primordial spirit animals. I am a seal. I also think Jenny May should be sacked. Well, that's a lovely shout out there to Kim Noble and to Shine. So that's good. Revelation. Here's a revelation. I've written a book, an Audible original called Revelation. It's me. To, right, hold on. Let's see if I can pitch this correctly. Revelation. Right. Now, you're going to love this book. <laughs> <laughs> audible original. Because what it was, was I, wait, I'm going to turn so I can see some people's faces. I can't be looking at Jen for this. She's hopeless. you sat there with your arms crossed <laughs> like someone who's going to not give me a job when I'm <laughs> my first job interview out of prison. Like I'm, like i'm a um who's him out of shawshank morgan freeman like i'm morgan freeman (laughs) in a job interview out of straight out of prison and you look at you you hoity-toity employer (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so Revelation is a book about finding the spiritual in everyday life. Originally, I was going to write it by meeting loads of spiritual gurus and philosophers and that. Then the pandemic kicked in. So I was instead forced to uh, go within and recognize how spirituality in my own life is saving me from a life of total mundanity. Now, go weren't there meant to be other things? Like, so that you have no choice but to find God, because otherwise you get wrapped up in materialism and ideas that can't help you. I mean, I have to go on TV shows and promote this, and it's very difficult to talk about discovering the divine on a tv show because it's antithetical that's the challenge i face you know i'm on a tv show They go, coming up after the break we're talking to that guy who used to be in sarah marshall go and then okay there is god <laughs> <laughs> and i'm sat there shivering on zoom like a little weirdo it's difficult
1: so this is kind of the dynamic so you should be practicing
0: what do you mean, you're Kelly and Ryan or you're James Corden yeah. or Jimmy Fallon I, or whoever? Yeah. Go on then, ask me a question. What's the book about? <laughs> I'm glad you've asked that, Jimmy Fallon, because it's a good book and that's for sure as eggs is eggs. <laughs> it's all about how you've got to find God in the everyday, Jimmy, something that wouldn't do you any harm, let me tell you, because I've seen the way you've been conducting yourself this evening like a devil worshipper. <laughs> I would be surprised if I were able to rip your shirt open, which I would do if I was there in the flesh, by the by, to find a pentagram etched on it and Alistair Crowley's complete works tucked down the front of your trousers and if it's not Alistair Crowley's complete works then boy take me out for dinner sometime because I'm interested in that rectangular organ I'd probably say something like that now strayed from the subject haven't I yeah too far
1: mm-hmm
0: James No, um, Billy, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Billy. (laughs) (laughs) Because we want to. It was Billy Piper there. I've gone back in time for a while. Revelation is about um, discovering God in the everyday and how, after looking for God in many, many places through my rudimentary addictions to like drugs, crack and heroin, everything. I realised that all of it is a request for connection and purpose. And it's very hard to find connection, purpose and meaning in this world. And the pandemic has shown up that there's flexibility in our systems that we haven't thought about before. We're living in a time of fraction, fragmentation, Billy. Why? <laughs> because we want to. <laughs> and we've got to find a way back home, back to the divine. And the only way to do that is to try and find meaning and purpose in every moment. Trying to, Yeah? Like that? Yeah. But somehow a blend of the two would be nice. Yeah. I'll go in with God. <laughs> <laughs> don't keep mentioning God I know everyone tells me that I can't shut up about it like the book agent says God can be quite divisive e.g. the Middle East <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah you're alright right. but that's what's happened I've become a religious nut and that's that isn't it anything else?
1: I, I like the latter I'd go in with the latter about rediscovering
0: Purpose, and, purpose meaning. and meaning. Use through, purpose and meaning. Through
1: the pandemic.
0: Purpose and meaning through the pandemic. Being stripped of ability to mindlessly consume and was forced to confront that like, I need to find purpose and meaning through connection to other people and through nature. Yeah. It's a bit more catchy, that, isn't it? Right, it's going to be like that. Anyway, that's available on Audible, <laughs> <laughs> on Audible Originals. Please pre-order it because it makes me look good if you pre-order things. And also, it's a very enjoyable book. It's probably about five hours worth of entertainment, I reckon. Do you reckon, Jen? Yeah. Yeah, nods are helpful. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Christ, isn't it marvellous? Um, and also, remember to sign up for the mailing list, stroke, alliance, stroke, uh, what's this word, Jen, that's Click. spelled C-L-I-Q-U-E? Click. no because
1: you can say click the link, <laughs>
0: it's like not an advantage, yeah, it's a clique it or an alliance where or a is, collective. Where's the
1: eek coming from? Q U E, is that not
0: uh. <laughs> Is that not uh? Jen, don't you go on another date with that poor woman. I don't know if dragged up and down Norwich High Street in search for coffee where someone goes, Is that not uh? That's not normal comms, it's not normal comms. Remember to watch the YouTube channel. You're going to love, for example, my video. Probably one of the ones you might want to look at. I mean, Harry and Meghan, great video. Shame about the hair. Puffed out too much (laughs) to the side. It's because I was putting too many things on my head earlier. In a meditation video, I was doing scarves and stuff. Um, But there's a really good one. It'd be about uh, breaking up tech companies, which I'm sure Luminary would be (laughs) thrilled about. And Amazon. Oh, crikey. We're in a real conundrum, aren't we? Well, that's the nature of modern economies, but in any, in any event, it's a very good video. Have a look at that one, the one about breaking up tech. Follow me on Twitter, Insta, TikTok, LinkedIn, and a new thing called... No, there are no others. Just follow me on those. All right, well, thanks very much, and now let's get into this g- goddamn interview. Joe. Imagine James <laughs> Nester sitting with his family. Like, no, in a minute, he'll, be, he'll just be doing that 10-second circle, wouldn't he? Just dabbing on that. <whistles> Forward another 10 seconds. Oh, God, he's still talking. Who is this Irish one? He's talking to someone who ain't even miked. <laughs> oh, what do you mean, book? Anyway, there's a link available to get that book, and all the information you need is available to you. Follow me on social media, and for God's sake, sign up to my mailing list. Go over to russellbrand.com, re website, looking real, real good by now, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not oh, a successful no, route. Yes,
2: that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out
0: we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. James, thanks for coming on uh, Under the Skin, this podcast that we're doing right literally in this moment. Uh, I'm really grateful to you. Thanks.
2: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: How can breathing, which is maybe respiration must surely be one of our most fundamental functional acts be something that we are so off track with
2: yeah i thought that i had been a good breather my whole life after all i'm still here and i didn't understand that breathing was something that wasn't binary you know i thought as long as we were doing it we were good we were alive but it wasn't until a few years ago that, that I learned that how we breathe determines so much of our health, our longevity, our athletic performance, and more. And so many of us are breathing in such a dysfunctional way, in the same way that so many of us are eating in a dysfunctional way. We're eating a bunch of crappy food, which is causing us a bunch of health problems. And breathing is tied right into that. We get most of our energy through our breath. Not through food and how we get that energy in air is is so important.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, when you're talking, I become very aware. Like, oh no, I bet I'm ballsing up my breathing right now. So how can you give us some basics?
2: Yeah, well, try writing a book about this stuff for five years, and <laughs> you, you become a, a complete neurotic. So once you start learning how important breathing is, how important nasal breathing is, how you shouldn't be breathing through your mouth, how you shouldn't be breathing too much, it starts to drive you crazy. But that isn't the point of doing this. Uh, the point of learning how to breathe correctly is so that it becomes a habit. So it can just run in the background. But sometimes habits can take weeks or months to really acquire. And so that's that's the whole point of trying to train yourself to breathe better. So. You know, everyone has a slightly different breathing dysfunction, so it's hard to offer a blanket prescription to to everyone. But there is a foundation of healthy breathing, just like there's a foundation of healthy eating. Eat your vegetables, you know, eat some protein, eat some fat. So with, with breathing, it's breathe through your nose, breathe less, breathe slowly, and breathe in a rhythmic pattern. Look at any other animal they're breathing this way, except for modern humans.
0: I suppose the implication, rather than the raison d'etre, is that this brings your attention to your breath, which of course is sort of fundamental to many meditative techniques.
2: Of course. I mean, in my opinion, those benefits from meditation at the beginning are almost entirely tied to your breathing not to focusing on a certain point. We know that there's so many benefits of meditation. Once you start getting it down, you can grow more gray area in your brain. You can access your nervous system function. But it's the breathing that, to me, is the core part of meditation. And you think of any meditation you're doing, uh, there are no meditations that I'm aware of where you're not paying attention to your breathing, where you're not slowing your breathing down, where you're not allowing it to become rhythmic. And and so I think just doing that, you can focus on a Buddha, Shiva, whatever you want, but just by focusing on your breathing, you can get so many of these benefits.
0: Thanks, I'm really focusing on it right now, really. This podcast, at least, I'm gonna do it properly. Here's my first uh, foray into in, into inquiry. I even heard someone say before, like that smoking and popping out for a fag, like the reason people might be into it is because it's like one of the only times they're <laughs> like sort of breathing in a conscious and aware way.
2: Yeah, you know, I haven't heard too much about that. If that allows them to connect with their breath better, that's great. You know, it would be a lot more healthy not to be taking in a bunch of tobacco smoke. Um, to take that deep breath, to be conscious of it, and take in some some clean air, I think you'll get a lot more benefits of it. But I've noticed that with swimmers, too, are fully aware of their breathing. Singers are aware of their breathing. So this isn't uh, a big ask of them because they already know the power of harnessing their breath and what it can do. For the rest of us who don't do those things, we think that breathing is just this thing that we can't ignore because our bodies do it automatically, which is great. It, it would be awful to have to think to breathe 25,000 times a day. It's wonderful that we've evolved this ability, but that doesn't mean we're doing it right. And that doesn't mean we can't do it better and really benefit from that.
0: Curious if now no longer a, a relevant practice, that the first breath that a child takes after birth is often a, Oral gasp, you know, conventionally or traditionally after being smacked on the ass, like that your first breath is sort of taken in kind of fear.
2: Yeah, yeah. and uh, that could tie to to some psychological issues. I know that people have mentioned this, birthing, you know, that's why people do rebirthing, breathing exercises to try to reacquaint themselves with that experience if it was traumatic. I'm not a, a pro in that area at all. But it is interesting that we begin life with, with a breath and we end life with a breath and, and we live our entire life in between these breaths. One breathing therapist told me that every exhale you take is the past and every inhale you take is the future. And I think that that's an interesting way of, of looking at it.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful way to reflect on it. What can be inferred about our detachment from our nature if one of these most fundamental functions has become the deracinated from, you know, like a harmonious and organic way of doing it?
2: Well, it's not only breathing that we're divorced from. Uh, it's food that we're divorced from. It's exercise we're divorced from. It's social structures we're divorced from. And, you know, the majority of modern diseases right now are diseases of civilization. These are things that really weren't around a few hundred years ago. You think about how silly it is now that we have to have a treadmill in our houses to replicate what it was like to walk on the savannah, which is what we did for millions of years. Or we have weights now that we pick up and put down in the same place. Like if our ancestors saw this, they, they would think that this is absolutely mental. And Or we have vitamins and minerals and powders and goose to replicate all of the nutrients in whole foods. But we don't eat whole foods. So... You know, breathing is tied right into this in which we live in a culture where we're now sitting in front of Zoom the whole time. I can't take a big healthy breath even if I wanted to. We're wearing tight clothes. We, our abs have to look all ripped, you know. Um, women, some women wear Spanx which puts all their uh, organs together and inhibits them from taking a deep and fluid breath. So it's a confluence of all of these different stressors in our environment that has made us so, so sick and such poor breathers.
0: I suppose the uh, common denominator across the examples you've given is the insertion of consumer principles and the commodification of exercise, diet, and this, uh, again, dislocation from the conditions of our origin. Has much of your work and your writing, um, specifically uh, the new Science of a Lost Art, your book Breath, is it about essentially trying to recover our native practices?
2: I think so. Um, if, if you look at what happens when you return people who have various sicknesses to the way that humans were supposed to live, to an environment that is more conducive to our evolution, guess what happens? So many of these sicknesses go away. And that includes things like diabetes, things that were, are supposed to be irreversible, right? They're incurable, autoimmune issues, uh, migraines, and so much of Western medicine right now is trying to replicate that environment. And by replicating that environment, your body says, say, oh, thank God I'm not in front of artificial light all night and all day. I can get my circadian rhythms back. Oh, thank mm. God my body doesn't have to process all this crap food all day long, all this Pepsi and Flamin' hot Cheetos, you know. Uh, it wants to be processing real foods. You should be chewing food. And we're so divorced from so much of that. And that's the main reason why so many of us are so sick. And this shouldn't be controversial because it's so easily traceable. And and Daniel Lieberman at Harvard has been writing about this for, for twenty years in, in various books as well
0: he's been writing that in a sense we should be looking to replicate the conditions of our origin in order to be healthy which is pretty you know common sense when you think about it create the conditions that we evolved to live in or replicate or even synthesize them because we do now live in a sort of you know modern or post modern environment so we're going to have to try to find ways of eating breathing behaving moving that we've evolved to do
2: yeah i mean think about these blue light filtering glasses which i'm a big fan of what do they do they take away unnatural blue light to trick your body into thinking it's nighttime it's ready to get ready to go to sleep and and again think about this this new uh you know direction to walk ten thousand steps a day we we have to have this prescription before we didn't need to to have a diet of you should eat those plants and that meat and those fats it's just, this is how we evolved. And we didn't need to have a watch that would tell us to walk 10,000 steps a day because we were doing that anyway, you know? So, so uh, yeah, I agree with you. So much of, of what we're learning is when you return the body, our species, into a more natural environment in which it's evolved, it can it can really help heal itself in that way.
0: It feels that you can't discuss something as rudimentary as respiration without encroaching on the territory of sociology and biopolitics and the way that our lives have been managed and mismanaged. Did writing this book become politicized for you? Hmm,
2: That's a good question, and uh, it wasn't at the beginning because I spent years and years on this book um, talking with researchers who have been studying this stuff for. For decades, literally, no one was really listening to them. They were publishing these weird academic journals with these terrible titles on, the, on their papers. And, you know, the book came out six weeks into a pandemic. Obviously, we had no idea that this was going to happen. The book was scheduled to come out six months beforehand. And a, a lot of political movements based around breathing um, and, and people being denied breath. So uh, it was all of these things a respiratory pandemic uh this political movement together that I think allowed people to try to recontextualize their relationship with breathing uh which is something that again seems so simple but but it's really not it's not binary it's it's not that we do it or don't do it there, there's so many permutations within it
0: What why did you embark on this 5 year odyssey what was the inciting incident and why it sounds hard
2: yeah (laughs) well i never uh intended to to write a book about breathing that that wasn't something i set out to do but i kept finding stories and people and incidences that that didn't add up and what i mean by that is i was sent out on an assignment to write about freedivers these are people who can hold their breath for like five, six, seven, eight minutes at a time, and dive to depths below what scientists thought was possible. And I saw this, and I went back and reported it, and people said, no, you, you can't do that. You're going to die. Well, I saw it. there There's the video. And then these freedivers told me about people who were using breathing to heal themselves of incurable conditions and to heat themselves up. Literally, to they were able to sit in ice for an hour at a time and heat themselves up with breathing. I thought this was all BS until I went out in the field and and found that it's 100% true. It's been scientifically validated and all the proof is out there. And yet so many of us still don't consider our breath to be this powerful thing.
0: Is it a particular tradition, this free diving in a particular location?
2: All over the world, people have been doing this. There's archaeological evidence that dates back 10,000 years. So this is how you used to get red coral, uh, which grows below about thirty meters, you would have to free dive for it. The Greeks were really into free diving. Um, you know, pearl diving is what what they called it. Um, the Japanese were very into free diving. They still are the ama divers, all women divers. so all over the world in coastal areas, people were free diving. they understood the power of holding your breath, what the breath could do for you and then even after that, ancient cultures have been writing about breathing as a medicine for literally thousands of years. That's what yoga is. Yoga began as a technology of breathing. There were no movements to it before.
0: What are the implications for a materialist uh, scientific study if there are arcane methodologies that are discovered and put into practice without access to the kind of enhanced sensory data that underwrites much of our modern understanding of breath work?
2: Well, what's so great about breathing is it's so easy to measure right now. A lot of people have instruments, heart rate variability monitors, blood pressure cuffs at their houses, pulse oximeters, but even you go into a lab and it's it's very easy to measure what happens to the brain what happens to your circulation your heart rate your nervous system function and so that you know before 100 years ago we weren't able to do this which is why nobody in the west really believed that breathing could take us to all these places and do all of these things they believed it in the east because they had uh, anecdotal evidence they could see it transforming people But that's what what really sort of turned the dial for me, is to know that I could go into a lab and I could talk to people, scientists at at top institutions who were studying this stuff and measuring it. Once you have data and measurements, it's really hard to argue that something isn't working. I mean, there it is right there in front of you.
0: You think that that's, in a sense, now that we have access to these systems of measurement, you can't walk it back and consider that at some point these things were p- presumably experientially founded but for me obviously i see it as ancillary to chanting meditative te- techniques siddhis the potential for you know, levitation kinetic kinetic powers some of the other ideas that are spoken of scripturally and vedically where you know, as you've pointed out a great deal of this sort of breath technology is sort of explained in detail I I kind of perhaps because of my own nature it seems to me that you're sort of uh, you enjoy as do I uh, scientific discoveries scientific method and scientific representation of data because of precisely because of the empiricism but um, I also like the conjecture around mystery and the idea that In our pursuit of modernity, under the auspices of the myth of progressivism, we have discarded information that would be valuable to us as individuals that has only been neglected because it's difficult to commodify and to turn into a product.
2: I believe that some of that is, is true. I heard from various researchers, I won't name them, again at, at top institutions, they said that the reason why more people aren't hearing about this is you can't make money off of breathing it's really hard this is something free it's available to everyone everywhere we carry around our breath with us all day long all night long and we can hone that and and really get some benefits from it so you know along the lines of of people not believing things and and looking at data and changing people's minds there is this tradition in in buddhist in monasteries in which to go up to the next level of monkhood, you have to sit outside at night and breathe and melt a circle in the snow during winter. And this had been written about for hundreds and hundreds of years. This guy Naropa wrote about it a thousand years ago. And then this, this Belgian French anarchist opera singer by the name of Alexandre, David Neal went out to the Himalayas for 14 years and rediscovered this. Still nobody believed it until Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical Center um, Medical School went out to Darmsala, got these monks, hooked them up with all these sensors and showed that they were able to do this. They were able to heat up their extremities by 17 degrees uh, just by breathing. They were able to dry wet sheets over their shoulders in a cold room just by breathing. And That paper came out in the 80s. And you still get people that say, oh, this is impossible. We can't do that. Well, you can see the videos of it and you can read the scientific paper, which was published in Nature, the most esteemed scientific journal in the world. So, you know, there's only so much of that you can do for people who um, try to deny the power of this stuff. Look at the data and look at the science and and then you can have a discussion.
0: What do you think about uh, what did that breath look like? The one that could dry sheets and stuff. Did it look dramatic?
2: It looked like Wim Hof. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with Wim. So he's he's just adopted this breathing technique. And he's very, I, I talk with Wim semi-often, amazing guy. He's done more to bring awareness to breathing than, than in my opinion, than anyone else in, in the last hundred years. But he didn't invent any of this stuff. And people didn't believe Wim could do this stuff until... You know he broke 26 world records, you know, he's hiking up Everest in in short, you know, running running a marathon, he's sitting in an ice bath for 2 hours without getting frostbite and hypothermia. It's supposed to be impossible. And uh and it's so finally so many people have gotten the message and they're using his his methods not only to heat themselves up but to overcome autoimmune diseases which they were told were incurable. So it really feels like with scientific measurement right now, and with access to all of these ancient methods, which used to be very secretive, we're coming to a moment where people are starting to really understand and acknowledge the the power of their breathing.
0: That's pretty cool. So we could align these ancient mystical methods with modern scientific measurement tools to kind of underwrite a new approach to you know yeah biology at yeah, survival and thriving and of course i do know him and i'm a tremendous fan of him you know of course his work and also his extraordinary per- personality the sort of easy i would say nordic even though i know he's dutch but the sort of viking bombast of having the character round your house which i've had the privilege of uh experiencing he came with his son who's like he's a misery isn't he in arms like so that whim can communicate with earth and like i feel like um yeah i do that and i've done that breathing today actually and, and after you that i can after four or five rounds of Wim Hof inhalation exhalation full uh body capacity breathing uh hold my breath for four minutes i mean that's Impressive because given that my, you know, at first it's a struggle to do a minute and then after one round a couple of minutes, etc. Um, but like it's fascinating that people can swim around, you know, for six or eight minutes underwater with that kind of pressure. I just, I, I suppose what, 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 what much of WIM's work is. Illustrates is unexplored capacities of human potential that are not necessarily connected to something you need to buy, but just techniques that you can learn. And also, I like it that another thing I like about Wim is how democratic he is about like anyone can do it, anyone can do it. It's not, I'm not special. You know, it's a he's a sort of a yogi, really, isn't he? He's gone on a mission of devotion through breath. And yeah, as you say, it's difficult to think of someone comparable.
2: And you know, he's just one. Person in a long line of people who have been able to harness these abilities. There was this other guy Swami Rama in the 1970s He allegedly could do all of these incredible things with meditation and breathing Nobody believed it He went into a lab with a Navy physicist and was able to move around the temperature on the same hand 11 degrees Fahrenheit from his pinky to his thumb and he was able to make his heart flutter at 300 beats a minute and this was written about in the New York Times, so, uh, and it was all measured there by, again, a Navy physicist, you know, not, not a, uh, some, some new age dude. So uh, the fact that these stories have been around for so long, but people just sort of say, huh, that's interesting. Anyway, you know, but back to my Pepsi and, and, and Tiger King, I think is interesting because these stories reveal something about our bodies and, and what they're capable of. And I think that they also reveal something about how we can heal ourselves in the future and and progress as a species instead of regress.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly the implication, and it's a challenging one when pursued because any idea that challenges the interests of the powerful and the prevailing mm, myth, you know, that, that that's it's obviously disruptive and it's i think it's interesting to speak about it in these terms and i I accept that people need to understand it both sort of need to see it scientifically and then then it needs to be popularized and made accessible uh, precisely because of the health benefits and i see the correlations that you draw between breath and diet and i see how But both of these cases, it's uh, the result of suffering endured because we've become detached from our nature. It's interesting, like that, these sort of, um, you know, enlightenment rationalist ideas, when challenged, uh, you're always charged with, oh, you know, that it's romantic, you're a romantic, and the sort of noble savage type um, idea. But I said, so perhaps that's why, and just because I suppose you accept the conditions of our time are keen to present this information in terms of what can be measured.
2: Well, I think I think you know the science is obviously a huge part of it, but it has to be understood personally. And so if you look at climate change, how many studies are there documenting climate change, acidity of the ocean? Like there's probably a thousand, twelve hundred studies. Still, you get people that don't believe it or don't want to believe it. But it's easier with breathing because you can personally experience and see what happens in your body within a couple minutes. It's not like the payout happens after a few years, like with changing your diet like that can take a few weeks to really make a huge effect on, on your health. Breathing, it's it's after a couple of minutes. You can see these measurements. You can see what happens. And so I think that that's the most convincing thing for people to experience it personally and and to feel those benefits and then want to explore it more. Because you can't force anyone to do anything. You can't force someone to change their diet or to breathe a certain way. but you can at least open the door for them and, and allow them to explore it themselves.
0: What's your practice, James?
2: Well, uh, I try to stay out of the fray a bit. Uh, I'm a science journalist. I want to stay really objective, um, and and I hope I was uh, during this this long and strange journey. That's not to say I didn't pick up a bunch of tricks along the way. You can't help being affected, by people like Wim and want, want to breathe his his uh, in his method or Sudarshan Kriya or whatever. But I am aware of my breathing uh, throughout the day, especially when I'm working out or surfing or running. I At nighttime, I wear a little piece of tape on my mouth because otherwise I go Just like 60, 70% of the population sleeps with an open mouth. So bad for you, so bad in so many ways. And uh, every morning, um, uh, since the new year, I've been waking up and doing some some breathing, focusing on kundalini methods, which I just instantly feel a benefit from. And um, I'm starting to progress into more sophisticated methods now, and uh, I'm really enjoying it.
0: Are they based on kundalini, or are they kundalini?
2: Kundalini breathing methods. Breath of Fire yeah. is a big one. So, And, you know, standard stretches. Uh, I don't follow any prescribed uh, yoga, uh, school. Uh, but, uh, I know enough of the stretches to start off with that and just focus on my breathing at the beginning of the day. And it just makes a huge difference, especially when you're, you know, in front of zoom all day or you're reading emails or, or you're working away. You, you don't want to enter into that state of chronic low grade stress because it's just going to wear you down.
0: So you start off, do you do like a breath of fire for people that don't know, like can be, a nasal or oral but I'm guessing you do nasal inhalations that are motivated by belly pumping and what do you do a couple of minutes of that do you do any kind of position like your hands raised or any of that stuff
2: oh yeah yeah all, all, all of the above um, so I've been following on with um, this one teacher who who I find is quite good Brett Larkin uh, knows all of the ins and outs of this and so it's basically holding different postures while you are pumping your stomach and And each exhale should be this this very jerky movement. And so the yogis believe that your center of energy was right where your stomach is, right two inches below your belly button. But what we know from science now is that these movements help to massage our internal organs, which help with digestion, which help pump lymph fluid. So all of those toxins are pumped when we breathe this way. This is another reason why it's important to take deeper breaths. When we take deeper breaths, the diaphragm descends, and it helps not only pump blood, it eases the burden on the heart, but it pumps these toxins, this lymph fluid, out of our organs. And when we're not taking deep breaths, when we're not doing these kundalini maneuvers, this stuff can sit and coagulate and cause a bunch of problems. So the yogis called it, you know, prana or energy. They had different names for it, but the principles were finding completely check out on a scientific level right now which i think is just fascinating
0: that we can maneuver and direct our life force you said some pretty fascinating things there so you do that you do like a, a variety of kundalini breath of fire type positions and then some more like half a yoga asana type stuff just so that your breath and movement align is that right
2: Yeah, I just start out by by stretching, um, and then I will do about 15, to depending on how much time I have, 15 to 30 minutes of this breathing. This was not something I was doing for a long time. This is relatively new, but um, after six months of of extremely stressful work, I felt I was approaching a a sort of breaking point. I thought how ironic I am sitting here talking about the benefits of breathing, and uh, I'm not harnessing this... You know myself, so so I've really gone into it now, and once again, it, it feels like it's centering and, and balancing my my life in some big ways.
0: Have you set yourself a proper schedule? Like you make yourself do it when you get up.
2: I do. I'm not a morning person, but it's the first thing I do in the morning. I just I do it in the morning, and now I look forward to it. Uh, right when I wake up I look forward to it which I've never had that experience with any morning workouts I always thought they were miserable but but this one definitely feels differently
0: where do you live James
2: I live in San Francisco
0: Uh, so you can't you don't surf there
2: then no oh yeah 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 oh yeah yeah it's not very good now it's we're in here in spring uh very windy but but there's a great beach out here I mean there's not a great beach out here surfers do not come here the beach is terrible. <laughs> Surf's awful. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm about 10 minutes, 12 minutes from the beach. Yeah.
0: And you're breathing, you're mindful of your breath when you're surfing, are you?
2: The whole time. And, and you really have to be. I've, I've adapted to nasal breathing while I'm surfing, which gives you more energy for less effort. And this is very important. You're talking about your four minute breath hold. If you're surfing out in, in some rough stuff, you have to be comfortable with that breath hold right so you're going to be held down for a long time in a very stressful situation the worst thing you can do is panic so i take that as an opportunity just to sort of come in center myself and and enjoy the ride and i think that that's how you're able to to really enjoy those experiences which can seem threatening
0: would you be on an holding out an exhale or holding in an inhale or just wherever you've landed
2: Definitely an, an inhale, you want as much oxygen as, as, as possible. I, I can do it on an exhale because I've, I've been doing breathing stuff for a while. I learned how to free dive years and years ago, which was the most incredible experience've I've ever had, and I look forward to it doing it again whenever this pandemic is over. But so I've become acclimated to to holding my breath on an exhale and inhale.
0: Mm-hmm. And and on all of the stuff in nasal breathing, I do like, when permitted to do so, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, I feel like, you know, I know that I should be nasally breathing while doing that. But because, you know, the, the combat element and the adrenaline and stuff, I find it neon impossible to breathe nasally. And also, yeah, I guess I go into a sort of a slightly panicked and fearful way of doing it and then it becomes normal. Are there any so? And sometimes I feel like I can't get enough breath nasally. I feel like my nasal passages aren't wide enough. Have you got any thoughts?
2: Yeah, this is really common. Um, you know, 15 percent of the population has chronic sinusitis. Uh, half of the population has chronic obstruction. So we're contending with various nasal issues, either because of allergies or structural issues in in our faces. Because our faces in the last three hundred years have flattened. They've evolved in a way that's not conducive to breathing. That's why we have crooked teeth. Um, our, none of our ancestors had crooked teeth. They all had straight teeth. In the last 300 years, 90% of us now have crooked teeth. With a small mouth, you have a smaller airway. So that's a long way of saying our noses have changed. Our, our nasal structures have changed. So some people need surgery, but a lot of people just need to breathe their nose more and become conditioned to doing that so you will get more especially in uh i've done martial arts for about about 12 12 years 13 years so especially in moments of of high intensity breathing through your nose not only allows you more energy but it allows you to calm down your nervous system so you can think and move with more logic and it's, it's so important. That's not to say you can't default at some time. Someone's got, got you in a headlock and <sighs> take a few breaths out of your mouth. That's fine. But, but we know that for athletic performance and recovery and for brain function, nasal breathing is the way to go. Why? Because the nose, breathing through the nose, you are going to get 20% more oxygen than equivalent breaths through the mouth a lot of us think that that need to breathe right now if you if you exhale well you can hold your breath a long time if other listeners are if you exhale and you hold your breath after a few minutes you're going to or seconds even you're going to feel that strong need to breathe that's dictated not by oxygen but by carbon dioxide by rising levels of carbon dioxide so the nose naturally slows down breath. It pressurizes it and allows your lungs to extract more oxygen. When we breathe through our mouth like this, <laughs> we're bring, bringing air into our lungs and out of our lungs without ever using it. We're wasting it, which causes our heart to race, which causes constriction of our blood vessels, which is why you can get cold fingers or a lightness in your head when you're... <laughs> has nothing to do with oxygenation. We're just conditioned to doing this.
0: How can conditioning take a disadvantageous pathway?
2: Well, a lot of us think that that evolution is the straight line of progress. Like we're getting better and stronger and survival of the fittest. That's completely wrong. Evolution never meant that. Evolution means change. If you don't believe me, just look at the human species. Is it an advantage for our long-term survival for, you know, 10% of the population to have diabetes, for 50% to, to snore, for, for how many percent to, to have cancer in, in our life? 20% of us, will more than that, will get cancer. So this has nothing to do with, with evolution. So we've, we've adapted certain traits per our environment and our environment has not made it conducive for, for us to live in a healthy way. And so our breathing has taken a huge hit. So the reason why you're unable to breathe through your nose very clearly might be structural, just like so many other people. You might have some sort of issue there because you didn't develop, just like me, properly to have this huge mouth, right, that was big enough to, to, that all my teeth were growing straight, right? So our, our mouths are small, our teeth growing crooked. Or it could be allergies, could be something, pollution, mold, dust, all of those things. Do you do
0: things like neti pots or any of that stuff?
2: Yeah, neti pots are great. You know, uh, these these are good uh, band aids to to the modern modern life. Uh, <laughs> these little these little uh, things, these uh, breathe right strips are great. They yeah. pull your nostrils up. Nasal dilators are great. But again, how ironic that these things are just trying to form our faces to the way we were. Before we mess them up, that's all they're doing.
0: Yeah, they're trying to reverse it. There's a couple of other people. I don't know if you've. I don't know uh, what the hierarchies and awareness is, But in the world of breathing, there's one guy, English Alan Dolan, who does sort of breath work. That's sort of I, when I've done it with him. You, you do it laying down, and it's sort of based on full breaths. And like when he was able to do this practice, he was sort of physical and hands on. You know. And man, the trip off of that, this had sort of, I would argue, psychedelic qualities, almost like, well, I suppose if the uh, seat or um, crucible of our being is attention, consciousness, breath and being as fundamental as you've outlined here already in this podcast, uh, like the order in breath orders consciousness itself as well as these um, tangible medical anatomical uh, m- uh, improvements enhancements changes like I, that like i had like weird I will, what i could only describe as spiritual experiences you had much of that stuff
2: yeah i mean it's such a powerful experience you know from wim hof breathing whenever i do that uh, at about the third or fourth round things get serious uh, in in a wonderful way there's a breathwork practice called holotropic
0: yeah, that's what that dude is. That's what Alan. Doley okay, is. okay. Yes.
2: This is this is three hours in a room breathing as hard as you possibly can. So uh you go to all kinds of strange places. Some people really have some big releases here because what this breathing does is it purposely stresses your body out. A lot of people think, Well, why do I want to stress my body out? I'm I'm stressed all day long. I want to relax but this compounds the stress into one prescribed time so you can focus all that get all your stress out and be relaxed the rest of the day just like wim hof method you know you start your morning that way that's a stressful breathing technique it's not relaxing when you're <sighs> you know but you're compounding the stress so that for the other 23 and a half hours of the day your nervous system is calmed down you know how to deal with things in life the little stuff doesn't bother you as much so that's what these breathing methods do which is exactly what pranayama does which is what breath of fire does you know it stresses you out so that you can chill the rest of the time
0: i did this other work with this teacher called biet simpkin she's pretty cool and that one right it's um you just the breath you wouldn't think that it was all that it's like you're on your knees and you do sort of abdominal inhalations while raising the arms and then exhalations where you sort of bend over and then on the final which is only the fourth inhalation you as you take your ass off your heels and sort of stand on your knees you know like standing on your knees and um and like with a big inhale to the abdomen hold for a while and then release with a sort of strike here that thing it feels like it shuts down like what i feel this is what i feel like and i've wanted to talk to someone and this is cl- clearly you're the man for the job right because i have thought for like because me my bias is towards romanticism transcendence god goddess consciousness it's you know i'm down that road i'm too far down that path ever to come back but like a uh, like uh I my sense would was that someone that was an expert in respiration would regard what the i was experiencing this is what it feels like to me like my individual identity goes offline but but there is a kind of awareness that is transcendent not only of kind of personal recollection preference etc but almost beyond the semiotics of ordinary life like i there's there's a space in there that's got a viewer in it a a self as it were but like it's not s- as the it signals it's weird in there like it's an unspace and it has a really interesting impact on me i i've often sort of joked about it and said oh like a probably a medically minded person would just say well that's sort of like hyperventilation or whatever but it, f- it feels like it has a s- some kind of profundity to it i wonder what you think about that rather more particular experience around breath
2: well i'm I'm sure it is doing something to your body. It's affecting your brain. It's a function affecting your nervous system in in some profound way if 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 that's the result from it, it would be interesting to to measure what's happening to the body, what's happening to your nervous system function, your heart rate, your circulation, your brain waves. And and that's where, to me, I think it gets interesting. This isn't to discount personal experience. I've had some very, very powerful experiences with breathing. But I've noticed that when you just talk about your personal experience, people just go, oh, yeah, well, that's your thing. It's not going to work for me. Uh, science is a way of leveling the field and saying this is what we know, how it affects our biology. So we know that when we hyperventilate, we reduce the blood flow to our brain. And if we do this for long enough, We can reduce the blood flow by up to like 40 percent in extreme hyperventilation so what this does is it cuts off different areas of the brain that have to do with perception right and and so this feeling of rebirthing that you're you're living again is probably the body's response to thinking it's dying you're simulating the effects of dying to the primitive parts of the brain which allows you to then come back out of that and have a different context or view about yourself, about the world, about other stuff around you. And that's where I think it gets, it gets really powerful. This stuff is doing something to people. There was one researcher who uh, used holotropic breathwork with 11,000 patients, um, uh, psychiatric patients, uh, people with schizophrenia, people with addiction. He said it worked better than anything else. He wouldn't have kept doing this if it hadn't have have worked. And he followed 423 of them throughout the years and found that this was more effective than anything else. So it's allowing them to break through in some way, but there's still, it's veiled in this mystery. We don't know exactly what it's doing. And that to me is what makes it even more interesting.
0: Yes, and whether or not you sort of celebrate or narrativise the mystery as has customarily or perhaps more accurately traditionally happened or not, it kind of doesn't matter because the impact is the impact. Like when you hear sort of someone like Terence McKenna talking about like psychedelic plants, it's like it doesn't require your faith and belief. It's going to have a chemical reaction in your consciousness that you will experience. I mean, of course, we can bring our personal biases to it, uh, and that kind of it makes sense what you're saying about sort of death simulation, but that too for me has kind of spiritual connotations, and particularly when we sort of look at that, you know, we can start to examine what the nature of self is using this rubric, like you know, a sense of some recollections, a taxonomy of preferred impulses and conditions, and to have access to a kind of baseline consciousness through these techniques does seem like it might facilitate a kind of rewiring, could be very useful around addiction, and evidently. Conditions that are assumed to be more pathologically entrenched, such as the um, you know medical conditions you listed there, the schizophrenia or whatever.
2: Well, yeah, because that's how the brain works. So the more we think about a certain thing in a certain way, the more those neural connections are going to become stronger and stronger. And sometimes they need, sometimes those connections aren't the connections we want. Yeah. Those are the ones keep keeping us back. So what do you do? Do you just blunt it and, and put a blanket over it with, with tranquilizers? Tranquilizers work for a lot of people, uh, but they're not addressing the core problem at all. Which is why electro, um, you know, shock therapy. The reason why a lot of people think it works is because it sort of blows everything out, so you can start again. It's the same thing that happens with psychedelics, with a lot of the research going on, um, you know, in, in mushrooms right now, that it allows the brain to sort of clear out those connections, start again. Ibogaine. There's been some very interesting research into that as well. Ayahuasca. But but breathwork fits into that. As, as well, and and in in my view, this is something that's much more accessible. Um, we know that it can help reboot you. Um, it, it's just uh, it's allowing people to do this on their own terms and be in control of the journey they're taking, which for a lot of people, I think, is important because for some people, you would put them, uh, you know, under the influence of some drugs, and they might really lose it with breathing. You're in control. You've got you know, your own foot on the gas pedal of how far you want to take it.
0: Yeah, I like that idea too, James. And I like you saying there about the ECT, that it is the equivalent of just turning your laptop off. Just, no, that's it. We're starting again. And that seems like such a, I can imagine, uh, you know, I once spoke to... um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he said, like that, you know, the percentage of difference between us and our nearest uh, relatives is like a, just a two percent DNA differentiation, and in that gap is culture, art, politics, space travel. You know, if you envisage two percent further on from us, you know, like that, they may look back at our ECT and our diets and our conduct and our materialism and our clumsiness, almost aghast, and. Yes, I do like the idea that we can get beyond it. Furthermore, with that mushroom thing, one of the things I've been learning lately, just because of guests on uh, on the show and stuff, is about that mycelium. Of course, the mycelium network and the intercommunication that's sort of happening. And it occurred to me that that again is something that's been revealed because of the you know progress of m- instruments of measurement and observation, and it. I feel like perhaps there are as yet undiscovered connections between us and certainly in the realm of consciousness, that great unknowable facet of our being and the seat of being itself, that there are potentially super material components to it, which you know by their nature are going to be very, very difficult to measure. But it seems that if you can sort of alter the subjective experience through breath work, it's getting into interesting territory.
2: Well, we're getting better at measuring these things. And I think that there's a lot more interest in the scientific community and all the stuff we're talking about right now because the previous methods, uh, people are pissed off. They're just not working. Uh, it's it's only when there's a breakdown that you can have a breakthrough. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., the healthcare system here is a, is a complete disaster, which is why all these wearables are coming out to allow people to... to look into their own health metrics and to fix themselves with that. That's why there's this huge market coming up right now because it's been so terrible here for for so long. And just along the lines of like that, that mystical edging that so many of these different therapies have around because we understand that they're working, but we still don't understand exactly how they're working. And a lot of scientists think if we don't understand how it works, we can't accept that it works, which, which is a, a completely wrong way of thinking about it. You'd see these monks, the monks that Herbert Benson at, at Harvard studied, and they were able to heat themselves up, but simultaneously reduce their metabolism by 60%. And no one this is as low as anyone's ever seen before. Um, and this is way lower than someone in a coma. And yet these guys are turning on while simultaneously turning off and no one knows how they can do that so it's that gray area between those two things that I think is so fascinating and there's a lot to learn from there
0: yeah like Wim talks a lot doesn't he about autoimmune stuff and like I've heard him saying I hope I'm not uh, doing him a disservice but that what part of what he believes is that we'll be able to intervene in unconscious bodily processes and we get almost into you know much more m- mystical um, dare I say new age territory when talking about the mechanics of healing and, uh, and other bodily functions that if we can intervene consciously in those processes that yeah we are in the the formerly what would be regarded as the territory of the mystic if you can intervene in if you can heal yourself of eg you know cancer if you can sort of inform your body to stop making these cells and start making these cells it's interesting Obviously, because like I indicated with that med- that uh, breathwork experience that I described, it's beyond the realm of ordinary communication, and I can't imagine whatever it was those monks were doing that it was anything like digestion system slow down sixty percent. You know, like, like it's not going to be directive in that way. So it's it's hard even to quantify.
2: Yeah, and it, to a lot of people, this stuff does seem spacey. But all you need to do is put your hand over your heart and inhale and you're going to feel your heart rate speed up and then take a long exhale you're going to feel it slow down so just with your breath within a few seconds you can affect your heart rate you can affect your circulation you can affect your digestion they've measured brain waves you can affect how the connections between the different lobes of your brain so we already know all this stuff so so you know it's going to take years and years for someone to sit in a cave and be like, I'm going to direct my energy to my liver function right now, and I'm going to affect that. Uh, I believe people can do that, but all of us can hone our breathing. And by honing our breathing, we can influence all these just. Different systems. We can influence our nervous system, our immune function. Wim has shown that. And so many people who have practiced Wim Hof Method have shown that with autoimmune diseases. The, these people have been miserable for years and years. A couple months later, they're like, I have zero symptoms of this. Why didn't somebody tell me this before?
0: Because they had worked out how to profit from it. So, like it's, well. it's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. And it's a kind of very radical and exciting world. I think what I admire about your approach to this stuff is you seem quite resolute in staying with data that you don't. uh, That was obviously a very deliberate choice, was it not to enter into the realms of crystals, nice, fancy hats, scarves?
2: Hats, scarves, beads, robes, oils, (laughs) all amazing stuff. But but again one person's view of things uh I really uh you know some people are memoir writers some people a- a approach different subjects and want to only understand them for themselves but that to me isn't how you turn the dial you have to create something and address these things in a way that it's applicable to other people and to me the best way I've found of doing that is to have objective data you can't argue with numbers and when you have something you can't argue with, then you can really have a conversation about the true potential of of people and and our ability to heal ourselves, or heat ourselves, or to reach mystical planes of of consciousness through breathing and and other stuff.
0: Are you an academic, James? What's that? Your background?
2: I am not an academic, uh, but I've been writing about science for for fifteen years, twenty years. And it's that that gray zone that that you keep mentioning uh that I find really fascinating uh, here are you know and it's so much of this stems from free divers. here are people doing something that is supposed to be impossible, and yet they're doing it every day and and they're right in front of you and still even even given that, I still hear people say, uh there's an oxygen tank down there uh, <laughs> you know w- w- without recognizing if there were. All of these people would be dead if they took a hit of oxygen at, at 300 feet.
0: Hey, what is project, C- you know, cetacean translation initiative? Is that something that you're, what is that?
2: So uh, my first book, Deep, I was able to hook up with some freedivers who showed me like the real possibilities of freediving. And, and one of the things they used it for was to really commune with oceanic animals. So when we scuba dive, we, we can go deep in, in the ocean, but it's extremely loud and disruptive. So everything swims away from you. Um, no one wants to be around you. When you free dive, you're completely silent. And marine mammals see you dive down, then go up to the surface, grab a breath, dive down again. And they think, wow, you're, you're just like we are. So everything comes towards you. So dolphins come towards you. Fish come towards you. Whales come towards you. And I was able to, to hang out with some freedivers who had these incredible experiences with sperm whales, um, one of the largest predators on, on the planet. They shoot these clicks for echolocation and for hunting that are the loudest animal sounds on the planet. You feel them in your body. They hit you in the chest, it shakes your body and they can scan you. They can actually see inside of your body. So These researchers believe that they're taking a, a picture and they see humans in the water, they see lungs, they see hair, they say you're not like the other stuff we see. So this, these 60 foot long animals come up to you and start interacting with you. I've had this experience and once you open that door you you never close it. So. With a bunch of other researchers we started this this campaign called project seti which is trying to decode sperm whale well communication these animals have been on the planet for tens of millions of years they have a brain that's six times the size of ours they communicate they've probably been communicating in a way that's much more sophisticated than than ourselves and we're doing this with people engineers from mit from harvard from Oxford from leading institutions and um this is just getting booted up David Gruber's the one who's who's leading it and we're hoping in a few years to to have more information about the communication of these animals before they're all gone from from the planet
0: what did you have what was that experience was it or
2: it was it's it's interesting because I had heard about it I'd seen videos of it I'd seen pictures and I thought I was prepared for it um but I wasn't when you get in the water and this animal that could kill you in seven different ways in, in a second. Their teeth are this long, okay? <laughs> they have teeth and they're this long or could hit you with its fluke. Uh, it chooses not to. It comes up to you. It communicates with you. It connects with you eye to eye after everything we've done to them. We've almost killed them off You know, entirely that that they're still cool enough to come and, and approach us in peace, uh, it was uh, extremely affecting for me.
0: Yeah, it sounds. I fantasize about it a little bit because I feel like um, that to be in an unfamiliar to me space, you know, underwater, and to experience something that vast that there isn't a modern uh, corollative or corollary rather to that and that it would feel i would think sort of holy and uh nuministic and might be perception altering
2: well it's the closest thing to space travel is, is i'm ever going to have because when you're freediving there's there's zero gravity below 10 meters so the ocean instead of pulling you up to the surface it starts gently pulling you down and in that space of about 10 meters there's, there's literally zero gravity. So you can sit there motionless and you're in this, this globe of blue and there are these alien life forms that are so evolved. Uh, they definitely have 2% more intelligence that, than we do who are coming around you, interacting with you, welcoming you into their pods. And uh, it's the heaviest experience that, that I've ever had and that everyone who's had this experience says the same thing and then their their lives usually change after that and and that's one of the reasons why this this project has picked up steam because people are like yeah I've had that I can't explain it but I want to know more
0: did it make you cry or like poo or wee or something did it make you have some sort of emission
2: it well luckily i was with an amazing uh freediver um who told me that you just have to go in with complete trust. If you are scared, if you are jerky, if you're trying to take pictures or selfies, they can pick up this vibe in a second, and they're gonna turn around and go away. So she had, she said you have to be completely submissive to this experience and to these animals. And uh, at the beginning, it was really hard. My heart was just beating, beating, beating. And then just something turned when when I saw them, and they were about ten feet away, and the eye was this big. Something just turned off, and I was extremely calm. And uh, at at the moment, it wasn't emotional, but but then for right right afterwards, and and for days after, uh, it was really profound. And and it still is when I think about it. And I can't wait to go back and uh, have this experience again. I think about it all the time. <laughs>
0: Do you keep saying that that you feel that they might be operating on a frequency of intelligence that though the markers of technology and progress and building cities and having art is not part of their deal, that they may be operating in a reality that is uh, beyond ours?
2: Culturally, they're more similar to humans than any other animal. So they, they have essentially nursery schools. The males go, juvenile males go off and cause trouble, then come back to, to mate, uh, you know, every season. And they have these family groups that they stay in their entire lives. So just because they don't have, you know, Eiffel Towers uh, d- does not mean they're not intelligent. Th- these are animals who couldn't build that stuff if they wanted to, right? They're underwater. They don't have hands. But they have these, if you look at a sperm whale body, this enormous brain. We know they're communicating with this brain and they can send these clicks to one another from tens or hundreds or some researchers have said across the planet. Because what they have found is around 3,000 feet deep is this area in the ocean where sound projects for hundreds or thousands of miles. And this is when uh, submarines go down there and this is how they stay in communication for thousands. So, of course, we find this and the first thing that we hear are whale sounds coming from all over the planet. So, um, they believe that this is their kind of internet. So, as humans, we go down there and just start projecting our own sonar and completely blow it out. So uh, there's only so many times you can see this. So who's, who's more intelligent, you know? Uh, roads are cool. Computers are great. Zoom is awesome. I'm a, I'm a big fan of all those things. But, you know, I think that intelligence should maybe be measured on uh, how good a steward you are of the environment. How you've set up a system for survival. These animals have been living, you know, in peace as perfectly a part of, of nature for tens of millions of years. And uh, modern humans have been around for around 300,000 years, uh, you know, and, and look what we've done in that time.
0: Bloody hell, mate. Well, that's pretty amazing. So you're the the thing that CETA is doing, is SETI rather, is uh, for exploration, investigation and study.
2: Yes, yes. And this is, again, is is uh, Professor David Gruber is heading this up. I was just a bat boy for him trying trying to help out where I could. Um, but what they're doing is right now building robots, uh, building a marine base, building a, a whole station to study whales in a deeper way, more deeply than any other animal had, has been studied to study their communication. This just got accepted as a TED audacious uh, prize. So it's a fully funded um, mission right now. And we, we dealt with a lot of crap. For years and years, people thinking this was some new age crystal thing until we got the top roboticist at, at Harvard and top engineers at MIT. And, and now people have, have changed their tune saying, oh, I really want to be a part of this. So it's it's been an interesting turn turnabout of, of events. Wow, that sounds really
0: deeply fascinating. And it's interesting to, and, and also impossible to imagine what reality might seem like to a creature that's operating on sonar and scanning and communicating across those distances, not only of space, but of, of time. It's, uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. Is it hard to learn to free dive?
2: If you're already holding your breath for four minutes, man, you, you'd be able to do this so easily. And, and I will, I will tell you from, I can tell, I know you're a meditator, you're into breath work, you're into these, these more mystical, uh, experiences this is the most deeply spiritual and mystical experience I've ever had. And it's the same thing for other freedivers who have done it. So that, that's a long way of saying the, the freediving a lot of us are exposed to and magazines are like these competitive divers and they come up with blood all over their face. and They're like, yeah, I'm going to go deeper for longer. No, this is an underwater yoga. It's a meditation. And if you accept it like that, it's a beautiful and nurturing thing.
0: Where is it that you go to have these encounters?
2: Well, San Francisco is terrible for that. So very stormy waters, bad visibility. So you have to travel, which is another bummer. That you know, I've been downstairs in my house for for a year, haven't been able to to do anything. Um, but you you travel so to places with clear water, Australia water. or oh yeah, you can go to us of of course. Um, you can go, you know, cold water is is great too but you'll need all the extra gear nothing feels better when you have zero on but but a swimsuit and you've got a mask on and that's your technology and that's that's what you're using to to interact with this underwater world
0: yeah that sounds amazing james thank you so much i really um i found it very beautiful moving and towards the end quite hypnotic conversation thank you very much
2: thank you very much for having me
0: thanks man well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with me and James Nesta, and you know a lot more about breathing and breath now, and that stuff about freediving, very beautiful and profound and moving, to think about whales down there in the deep and the kind of encounters you could have with them, and it makes me question the nature of consciousness, subaquatic life, a new evolutionary direction, although, of course, we did come from the sea, makes me wonder what consciousness itself might be. Does it make you wonder that, Jen? <laughs> um... <laughs> where would jen be at home do you know what i mean like if you think of right like, she doesn't fit in this context but where would what she? Do you
1: mean where would i be
0: where could we put you where Sometimes you wouldn't I... be an anomaly that's what i'm trying to think <laughs> why am
1: i always an anomaly
0: i don't know jen did you fit in when you were at that college <clears throat> jenny claimed she was a teacher at that college
1: no i don't fit in anyway
0: no you people don't. are
1: generally a little bit scared of me
0: and what about your family did they like you
1: I don't really know. Not really, because I've (laughs) met a few of them.
0: And they seem very put off by you. They only relaxed when you walked away. Uh They're like, oh, it's nice to meet you, Mr. Brand. Please call me Russell. Call me Russell. There's no need for this formality. Oh, but you're just so wonderful, the way you've put up with our Jenny. Honestly, it's nothing. I do a lot of charity work, and I consider this to be just Uh one more piece of service, same as I would if I was just you know, spending time with a c- convicted criminal helping to make uh, peace with the world.
1: Maybe I have that thing that you said earlier. What? Where I know everything's just subjective and so I don't really have an opinion on anything. You think you're in tune
0: with the mind of God. I didn't say it (laughs) very interesting very interesting indeed well thank you for joining us for this (laughs) this thing that's happened I'm I'm, I'm very grateful to you for subscribing and please stay with us if you can bear to next week we've got some we've got some wonderful podcasts coming up we've got Glenn Greenwald we've got Jordan Peterson we've got Edward Snowden I mean come on uh, Vandana Shiva Yeah. I mean, if this podcast you're after, you've come to the right place. (laughs) That's what I will say. Thank you very much. This has been Under the Skin, only from Luminary.